Hey there, I'm Scott Bertram, and I'm the director of the Hillsdale College Podcast Network. This show and all the other shows on the network are listener-supported. That means we hope for, we count on, frankly, we rely on the support of listeners like you to make our educational outreach possible. One of the best and most convenient ways to do so is joining the Liberty and Learning Society. That's our exclusive monthly giving group. And in this month of March, we are looking for 300 new members of the Liberty and Learning Society. When you join, you'll help defend liberty through education, and you'll make shows like this one possible far into the future. All you have to do is visit hillsdale.edu slash monthly and complete the secure online donation form. If you need to pause or stop your gift at some point, no problem. Just call us. One of our friendly students or staff will help you. But today, will you be one of the 300 new members of the Liberty and Learning Society in March? Go to hillsdale.edu slash monthly to join the Liberty and Learning Society today. Help us bring these shows to you and other Americans at hillsdale.edu slash monthly. Welcome to Hillsdale College's Classical Education Podcast, bringing you insight into classical education and its unique emphasis on human virtue and moral character, responsible citizenship, content-rich curricula, and teacher-led classrooms. And now your host, Scott Bertram. Thanks for listening. You can find more information on topics and ideas discussed on this show at our website, k12.hillsdale.edu. That's k 12 hillsdale.edu. We're joined today by Catherine Kuiper. She is Assistant Professor of Education at Hillsdale College. Catherine, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. This is part of our Leading Figures in Education series. We continue with Catherine today as we talk about Henry Adams. Catherine, who's Henry Adams? Tell us a bit about his background. So Henry Adams is part of the Adams dynasty, if you will, of Revolutionary War and uh, founding fame. He's the grandson of John Quincy Adams and the great-grandson of John Adams. Uh, He's born in 1838, which means that he's a young man during the Civil War. Uh, He lives on into the next century, into the 20th century, um, all the way through World War I. So his lifespan is of significant historical interest. Quite a bit happens there. His roots are in Massachusetts and Boston because of that prominent family connection. But he spends most of his life in Washington, D.C., residentially, um, and also travels the world extensively. So he's a an interesting inheritor mm-hmm. of the Adams in um, the Adams legacy. I like that you said the Adams dynasty, not the Adams family, because that's yes. a different, you know, I did want to different. avoid that association. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll, we'll dig into this a bit more. But why is Adams important? Why do we remember him? He's remembered chiefly for a couple of works that he wrote. Uh, One, a memoir of his own life called The Education of Henry Adams. And I think his other most famous book would be Mont Saint-Michel and Chartres, which is a series of meditations on the Middle Ages, especially through the medium of architecture and theology. And those works uh, are still renowned for their stylistic uh, quality and the sort of historical insight that he's able to bring. They've remained classics to this day and are his chief contribution, I think, to our uh, memory of him. All right. We'll talk a bit more about those works 
later in the conversation. Tell us, uh, tell us about the state of the educational world around Adams when he was thinking and writing on the subject. What, what was happening at that time? So, I mentioned the historical span of his life, um, and the world of education was in a considerable state of flux during that span of time, from roughly the 1840s up to the turn of the 20th century. And this environment of rapid change, um, you see reflected partly in his career. So on paper, he had stellar opportunities, educationally speaking. He began at the Boston Latin School um, as a young boy. He moved on to Harvard College, re-graduated in 1858, and then went to study law at the University of Berlin in Germany. And yet, he really had nothing good to say about any of those institutions. Um, He's an elusive writer uh, who gives very little in the way of prescriptive advice, but he does make it abundantly clear that in his uh, his opinion, the formal education he experienced was, in his words, no education at all. That's how he describes it. Um, He speaks more highly of what he calls the accidental education he obtained through his travels in Europe, through encounters with art and music and the occasional political revolutionary. But he found the classical curriculum and forms that uh, were the staple of like grammar school and um, higher education insufficient and uh, unsatisfactory. Would you say he was influenced by anyone else, or is this largely uh, a product of his life experiences? I think that's exactly it. His writings on education are very idiosyncratic. He's both critical of the general classical curricula, as I mentioned, but he's also unpersuaded by the reforms that someone like Charles Eliot uh, introduces to Harvard in the 1870s. He's someone who's acutely aware of the changes that are taking place around him in the, in the 19th century, especially technological changes, which have affected every aspect of life, from the way we light our homes mm. to the way we travel, work, produce our goods. Um, and those changes, in his opinion, have affected the course of urbanization, industrialization, and therefore the social forms of the late 19th century, including our political and economic arrangements. Um, And because of that total shift that's happened, he believes that the world he's living in, in the late 19th century, would be unrecognizable to an American of the 18th century. Now, a particularly glaring example of that type of change in his experience is the shift in religious attitudes, Mm. especially in his place of origin, right? He's from a site of Puritan devotion and fervor, historically, New England, uh, and it's become a place of religious indifference among the members of his own generation. And he finds that to be a shocking development, even though he he shares that religious indifference, but he's amazed at it. He's baffled by the lack of attention that's given to this phenomenon, um, and so while these scientific discoveries and technological advances are changing the entire landscape of life in the decades leading up to 1900, he believes most education is just continuing on as if nothing had changed. And this is very frustrating to him that it's mm. not taking stock of what has happened to us. So if we, did, if we do live in a different world, in his opinion, this implies we're going to need a new education to account for it, to understand where it came from and to think about where it's going. So in terms of placing Henry Adams in the, in the context of his times, it sounds he is one that, that uh, will, will, will be pushing 
back and pushing against some of the, the, the more current ideas when it comes to the world of education? I think so. He seems to be somewhat on his own. Mm-hmm. He both wants a total overhaul of what came before. So he's, in that sense, you could say he's opposed to classical education. And at the same time, uh, the types of changes that we might call progressive, he, I think he finds them um, g- moving in the wrong direction, mm. not attending to the right things, the real human concerns. So what would you say that Henry Adams believed was the purpose of education? I think he found the purpose of education to be a process of investigating the world in which we live in order to understand who we are in that world. So he... um, he wants to make sense of his time and his place. Uh, in, you know, again, considering the span of his life, that's not an easy task for him um, any more than it is for anyone. But he wants education to respond to the world. He wants education to respond to this rapid onset of science and technology, to wonder if this is a good way to live for human beings if this makes sense for human beings, and to be more cautious, I think, about the types of changes we're willing to live with. I think he wants education to, more than anything else, give a sort of attentiveness Mm -hmm. to students, give an awareness to students. And so in that sense, even though I think he is not quite Uh, a champion of classical education. He is more concerned about adjustments that would need to be made to take stock of our current situation. At the same time, uh, there's a way in which he's a proponent of the the first or oldest classical command of education, which is to know yourself, know thyself. And he does not think that that's possible without a very uh, attentive historical sense without an attentiveness to the material conditions that surround you and influence you, even without you quite noticing, um, and without uh, just an awareness of the way in which you're moving through life. You told us earlier that Henry Adams is not much for advice or sort of clearly delineating how you might accomplish these goals that, that he's, he's somewhat laid out. So in terms of attaining those goals of education, the purpose of education, he doesn't tell us much. What, what should we think about it? That's a good question. Um, I think more than anything, he would draw our attention to things that we take for granted, things that we are prone not to notice. So, for instance, do we understand what our relationship is with nature, given that the way in which we live is so very different than the way we lived even 100 or 200 years ago? Do we understand um, how the technology that we rely on every day shapes the assumptions that we have about what is real, shapes the assumptions that we have about what matters? Because one of the things he is most kind of simultaneously devastated by and fascinated by is the way in which uh, the development of certain new technologies uh, replaces the divine Hmm in many ways because it becomes the new source of power, the new force in the world is how he often describes it. And it imparts a sort of motivation and meaning to lives, which people may not even be aware of, that they are treating 
some of our technological accidents as uh, definitive motivational forces. So this is something, just a, a bit of uh, a bit of self-awareness, I think is what he <laughs> would call for, thoughtfulness, um, to ponder whether the innovations we accept on a daily basis are necessary or good. He was also a journalist, right? Yes, he was. And so perhaps part of this is that journalist in him coming out, meaning I'll report what I yes. find, but you have to figure out what it means. Yes, I think that's very much the case. As a journalist and as a historian, he wants to lay a clear picture out for us. He's also very aware of the difficulties of getting the full picture. He's very aware that it's it's a complex story that is not told easily. And he seems more aware of that than some of his contemporaries who are content to see a sort of easy narrative. Mm-hmm. One of the things he brings up is the is the rush to accept Darwinism, that once we more or less abandoned Christianity, we needed a new narrative to impose on history. And so Darwinism was accepted almost immediately without thought. And he's aware that these stories are hard to tell. And he does the best he can, but he wants us to undertake that work as well. Talking with Catherine Kuyper, Assistant Professor of Education at Hillsdale College, about Henry Adams as part of our Leading Figures in Education series. I want to return to the two major works that you mentioned earlier in the conversation. The first was this memoir, The Education of Henry Adams. What makes this noteworthy and why should we still pay attention? It's noteworthy for a number of reasons. One is you're reading the story of a man who's trying to understand himself as an individual, but also in relation to the country uh, in which he lives, because he has this sort of historical weight he's carrying because of his family name. He's trying to uh, understand his own story within the story of America. And I think for most of us, this is a project that we do more or less unconsciously. We don't Mm -hmm. spell it out. We don't write it out. But we try to make sense of our lives within the context of the story of our country. So he's a particularly skilled um, practitioner of that art. So it's worthwhile to watch a master at work, I think. He's also, I think, as I mentioned, a stylistic uh, genius. Is a beautiful piece of writing, a beautiful piece of nonfiction. It's full of uh, melancholy and thoughtfulness, um, a lot of self-depreciation. He doesn't have a high estimation of his place in the world or his <laughs> abilities, uh, which as you're reading it can sometimes uh, stagger the reader because he is, he is so gifted at what he does. Um, so it's both worth reading for its beauty and for its, I would say, kind of invitation to the reader to participate in a, in a similar activity of remembrance and self-understanding. And what about the second work? Mont-Saint-Michel and Chart is... Did I make sure I made you say that? Yes, you are, you're welcome. <laughs> um, it's a, a very different book. So on, uh, in the other case, we had a sort of exploration of American history, a front row seat to a lot of the political, historical happenings of the 19th century. In this other book, which was written as a series of reflections on the Middle Ages for his nieces. He actually never intended this to be published. He just wanted them to have this as his gift to them. It's a very rich entrance into theology through the medium of art and architecture. What's really fascinating about this book is that you are reading a man who does not believe, right? He is not a Christian. He does not have faith, 
but he is so sympathetic to and attracted to the faith that built a cathedral like Chartres mm. that the, there's a sort of love and sympathy and understanding that pours forth in his words. And you get, um, I think, a real, a rich sense of medieval faith from this man who's standing so far removed from it. It's a beautiful experience um, and a very rich one, especially for a believer, I think. What, uh, where do you think that we, we see Adams' influence most at play in American education today? So this is an interesting question because I think, um, theoretically speaking, very little at all, and I'll get back to that in a second. But practically speaking, uh, there's a sort of accidental similarity between uh, popular approaches to classroom uh, management and what he did. So mm. by that I mean um, in the 1870s, he was hired by Charles Eliot to be a professor of medieval history at Harvard, a post that he refused at least a couple of times, uh, saying that he didn't know anything about medieval history, and so this would be a bad fit. But Eliot said, no one else knows anything about medieval history either, so you <laughs> might as well teach it. Um, he, he approached the classroom uh, with a distaste for the lecture method and a preference for what we would today call seminar method. He wanted to engage the students, get them talking as well. He especially wanted them to disagree with him. Mm. He thought that that was the real crucial component to a successful classroom. And so he would often uh, send them off on their own little rabbit trails of research. He didn't use textbooks. He wanted them to go find primary sources, report back to the classroom, see what sense they could all make of it together. And in that sense, uh, I think we could see a lot of similarities with typical classroom practices uh, today. Uh, here at Hillsdale, of course, mm -hmm. we prize primary resources in much the same way as a, as a crucial component of learning. We talk about the Socratic method here as a, a very valuable um, tool for uh, involving the students in the active learning of the material. Um, and one further note about his approach to the classroom, he often kind of bewailed or be bemoaned how large classes were. Mm -hmm. He said, really, a truly functional classroom would only have six students in it because the teacher needs to know them personally. They need to trust each other. There needs to be a real friendship of inquiry uh, and search for the truth. And I think all of those practices resonate today in various ways. Um, so that's more of his, his practical uh kind of compatibility with what we do today. <laughs> Theoretically, though, I think there's a couple of reasons he he's not as influential. And one is that he is such a harsh critic of the world that we live in. He is such a harsh critic of technology, of science, of the political and economic forms that we take for granted today, that it can be a little overwhelming or daunting to think, um, what sort of world does he uh, does he want or does he wish to build? And especially what kind of world could you build uh, with an educational program if you're trying to resist this sort of um, uh, devolution that he seems to think is happening? Mm -hmm. um, the other reason is is related to that first, and that is because, remember, he was dissatisfied with classical curriculum, but also dissatisfied with reformers like Eliot it seems to me that his vision of what needs to happen educationally 
is such a radical change that it's not something um, anyone is really prepared to make, right? We're still using the basic sort of forms of class and assessment and assignment and grades um, that we've been using for many decades, if not centuries at this point. And to disrupt those forms is just a, it's a bit too revolutionary, <laughs> a step too far. Mm-hmm. And I think for to satisfy his demands, it would need to be something a bit more on those lines, a bit more radical. We talked previously about the two major works from Henry Adams. Um, is there anything else that you would recommend to listeners who are looking for further information? Are there any outside sort of summaries of his thoughts that you'd recommend? So there is a, a very good single volume um, biography by David S. Brown called uh, The Last Aristocrat, uh, the, the Improbable Life and Education of Henry Adams. Um, that's a good resource because it is single volume. Most biographies of Henry Adams are multi-volume. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would say that there, I can't think of a, an entirely reliable summary of his thought because he is a, a meandering circuitous, subtle, ironic thinker. He's hard to pin down. And I've frequently seen people ascribe opinions to him that I thought were clearly not his. (laughs) Um, I've seen people speak of Henry Adams as a great proponent of technology, as someone who thought education needed to be entirely based on science and technological production, which seems very wide of the mark to me. So I think that if you want to know for yourself, you're going to have to read uh, at least the education of Henry Adams um, and see what sense you can make of it. Catherine Kuyper, Assistant Professor of Education at Hillsdale College, as we talk about Henry Adams as part of our Leading Figures in Education series. Catherine, thanks so much for joining us here on the Radio Free Hillsdale Hour. You're so welcome. I'm Scott Bertram. We invite you to like us on Facebook. Search for Hillsdale College K-12 Classical Education. You also can follow us on Instagram at Hillsdale underscore K-12. Hillsdale underscore K-12 on Instagram. Thank you for listening to the Hillsdale College Classical Education Podcast. Mm -hmm.